I think one thing we'll see in the, the political advertising world over the next several of years is a convergence where what was once thought of as two different things, digital and television, are basically going to become the same thing. And so that's something I'm excited about this next cycle and beyond. Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. My excellent guest today, Kenneth Pennington, is a partner in Middle Seat, a digital media and fundraising firm that works for progressive causes and candidates. Kenneth worked previously for Senator Bernie Sanders as digital director in the 2016 campaign, where he learned an awful lot about building an online campaign. If you are interested in entrepreneurship and technology and politics in the progressive political space, you should definitely listen. So after a quick word from my sponsor, my interview with Kenneth Pennington of Middle Seat. This episode is brought to you by Graphicacy. Graphicacy is an analytic design firm that can help you advance the mission of your organization using your own real data and information. They are 21st century visual communicators who create interactive graphics, motion graphics, and data visualizations. You can find Graphicacy at graphicacy.com. That is G-R-A-P-H-I-C-A-C-Y.com. With Graphicacy's help, you can visualize a better world. Kenneth, would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography? Sure. My name is Kenneth Pennington. I'm one of the co-founders and and partners of Middle Seat, which is a media and fundraising firm that works for progressive causes and candidates. I have been a, a lifelong entrepreneur, computer nerd, and at least in my career, political nerd as well, working in the progressive spectrum. About six and a half years ago, I I co-founded Middle Seat after being Bernie Sanders' digital director in his 2016 campaign, co-founded Middle Seat, and I've spent the the last six and a half years serving progressive candidates and causes from Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez to Cori Bush, Shiana Presley, John Fetterman, Beto O'Rourke, and then a bunch of great nonprofits and political action committees like Justice Democrats, ACLU, AFL-CIO, and other folks in the space. Most of my background is in digital strategy, raising money online, and getting eyeballs on things on the internet. Well, that's, I think, a good place to be. And it sounds like quite an enviable roster of clients and a pretty great career to this point. I always like to ask people a little bit about their road to that because it's fairly unusual actually to find yourself in a place like that. I would think particularly after helping Fetterman get to a victory, a narrow victory in such a crucial race. So you must be pretty pleased with the post-election feeling. Yeah, I mean, I'm extremely proud of the the team we built and the rock star team that, that worked on the Fetterman campaign Going way back in time, I never expected to be someone running a digital media and fundraising firm. Life is full of 
things you don't expect and takes you down all sorts of different paths. I got into the computer and tech world when I was about 12 years old. My house was built by a corporate builder called Pulte Homes that built a bunch of cookie cutter houses and, and built it at an angle like this up and down. So it needed serious repairs, which meant for an entire summer, I got to move up to an apartment sponsored by Pulte. When I moved to that apartment, I got cable internet for the first time. And this is the first time I was able to access the, the internet because previous to that, I had dialogue and my mom wouldn't let us use it because you had to disconnect the phone in order to use the internet. So I uh, fell in love with the internet during this summer. And my dad at the time was, was writing books for teachers and said, uh, I want to sell them on the internet. Like, can you make me a website? My brother and I sat down and opened up a uh, Microsoft front page at the time and built him a website. And through that process, I, I learned to, to code front-end development and just fell completely in love with computers and technology and the internet. Didn't have any political yearning at all until I got to high school. In high school, I, like many teenagers, wanted to get out of the house. And I had this dream of going to boarding school. And I ended up getting accepted to a program called the PAGE program, in which I worked on the floor of the House of Representatives as a junior in high school during the Iraq War, during Bush years, and was just so taken in by it and felt like I needed to dedicate my life to politics and to public policy and to the progressive movement. That was kind of what led me down that path. Where did you grow up that you were, were you in the neighborhood of Congress? No, not at all. I, I grew up about as far away as you could be other than maybe Alaska and Sacramento, California, uh, on the other side of the country in a small suburban community east of Sacramento, 17,000 people, uh, very heavily Republican area. Had this experience in D.C. and the rest of my life has really been about pairing the things I love about computers and technology with the passion I feel for you know making progressive change. That's how I got here. Well, you you characterized yourself maybe modestly as as a nerd in politics and computers and entrepreneurship, but where's the entrepreneurship thread coming in? Yeah, I I really do credit it back to uh, my dad saying, "Go build me a website so I can sell books online." Once I had learned to build websites, I spent the next uh, ten years uh, building my own businesses and websites online as a child with my brother, two of us across the hall from each other, building online hosting companies and all sorts of other little companies that never took off because we were, of course, in high school. And then when I was in college, I, I built a mobile phone review blog and got really into Android phone, smartphones, and um, ended up selling that to go work in the Senate for Bernie Sanders. I have founded companies basically my, my whole life and always enjoyed that process of, of starting something on your own and uh, trying to make it work. You majored in history at University of California, San Diego, is that right? Yeah, that's right. I, I went to UCSD and maybe my logic was, was backwards, but I, I felt like uh, I knew a lot about the computer science side of things or I was passionate about, um, I knew a lot about politics. I knew I wasn't going to do a career in history, but I loved it. And so I said, I'm going to get my degree in this. Felt like I was checking a box anyway, and I might as well be loving what I'm doing while I'm there. And so I 
um, studied history and enjoyed every second of that. And then, yeah, moved on to the the political stuff after I graduated. What was NCC Media? Is that the same thing that becomes Ampersand? It is. What, yeah. Yeah. So my my first job, when I got out of college, I moved to D.C. And at the time, I, I didn't know that what I really wanted to do was pair the computers and digital and tech with politics. The politics and progressive politics stuff was so important to me that I thought I wanted to write bills. And so I moved to D.C. thinking I got to get in on the hill where I can start writing bills to change the world. And I couldn't find a job for the life of me because while other students were interning, I was building my own obscure online businesses. I had no resume to speak of. So I was applying cold, you know, for jobs on the hill that are high. Well, you, you had that page experience. I had that. Uh, and that was about it. I was applying and not getting anywhere. Um, and the one place that was willing to hire me with zero experience was NCC Media, which is a conglomerate owned by Dish Network, DirecTV, Comcast, AT&T, and all the big players that sell ads. Uh, so they created a, a middleman for themselves to sell political ads uh, and other types of ads, but I worked in the political department. And what they do is every cycle for the last five or six months, they go out and they hire 100 young people out of college and bring them into an office with a big pong table and pay them as taps. And so I spent those first two years pl placing political ads uh, on TV. Really, really enjoyed that, actually. It was a fun work environment, very lively with a bunch of other young people uh, and did that. And when I was uh, let go at the end of the cycle, like everyone else was, I moved on to the hill. Well, let me let me ask you just something about that, because it strikes me, even if that's kind of a typical entry level job, it is a specific entry level job that is not unrelated to your career now. What did you take, if anything, from like understanding that there's a world of political ads that served you later? It's funny. I, I took the job out of a variety of like temp jobs out there because it had the best title. And at the time it was political media coordinator, which I thought I could put this on a resume and make it sound like something that it's not. It was really just a data entry job. That's why I took it. When I got there, it certainly exposed me to a world of political advertising and TV advertising, which I'm now in. Metal Seat is not only a digital company to help, but also runs television ads. I learned a ton. I mean, I learned about the relationships that buyers have with like television networks. I learned about the competitive process, which is every time Mitt Romney would buy an ad in Ohio, you know, we had a team member whose sole job it was to call Barack Obama's person and say, Mitt Romney just bought a hundred dollars of ads. Can you match it? Oh my goodness. I, what, did they know that was happening on the Romney side? Yeah. This is the bread and butter of television is it's called competitive their entire teams at political uh, buying agencies, whose entire job it is to track what your opponent is spending and immediately go and ask your campaign to match it. I would want my buys to be secret. It shows how little I know about it. So that's one of the, the interesting things about the digital media landscape. Because it's so unregulated and because Congress and FCC uh, are so out of date on this kind of stuff, Digital buys are all secret and don't have to be reported. But television, 
buys have been reported publicly by the SEC for, for several decades. All of that is public information. And so it'll be really interesting these next 10 years as streaming becomes the top way that people watch content to see how that changes and how the secrecy evolves. Did you also watch the ads? Did you have a sense of like what they were placing or did you not have time for that? It's not that I didn't have time. It's that it's, it just wasn't our role. And I, I actually never saw that. So my job was sitting in a spreadsheet-like program all day called Strata, where you put in ones and zeros basically for the, the number of spots at what time they're going to run on what station. Uh, and that's it. It's, it sounds glamorous. <laughs> it was it was really fun. And it was a good first office experience. It was good to get into the professional world, learn how to work with other people. And it was good to work with other young people. It sounds like you had a pretty decent attitude towards that. I, I don't know if you've noticed, but some folks out of college don't want to pay dues in ways like that. Maybe that attitude has changed a bit. Did you feel like it was beneath you at any time? I never did, and I couldn't have related to that sentiment. And maybe other colleagues there did feel that way. Um, it certainly wasn't my experience. I think we were making $19,000 a year, the equivalent of $19,000 a year. And I thought it was amazing. <laughs> I had never seen $19,000 before my life. And I was sharing a bedroom in my brother's house, splitting it with another guy for like 350 bucks, And I thought the whole thing was amazing. There's been this shift in the progressive political world employment-wise, which I think has been good in more ways than not, which is towards the workers who actually make this stuff happen, asserting you know, their own power and asking for more from their employers. And I think what you're getting at here is maybe some of the excesses of that, but I think that it's been good in more ways than it hasn't been. And I think it's just a long overdue thing. And I was probably blind to how much I was being exploited and how, how bad the job was at the time. That's a, a fair comment, at least in how I've seen the world. Uh, tell me how you made that escape to the Bernie office. You sound like you got laid off. How did you find the job? Yeah. So at the end of the cycle, everyone except for a handful of people get laid off from, from NCC Media. I was, was looking to get back on the hill Classic case of nepotism. My brother had worked on the Hill for a long time and had a friend who offered to interview me for a house internship. So I interned for a congressman in California in the Valley, not too far away from my district for just a couple of months while I was applying for, for jobs. And I got the birdie job because really, I think a fluke and I think a rarity, uh, I got it because the hiring director for the job, Jeff Frank, was Bernie's press secretary at the time, and he was an entrepreneur himself. And he said, I noticed on your resume, you found on all these like <laughs> online companies. That's, that's very interesting. Like, Tell me about that. He thought it was cool. Other people were like, oh, this is fake experience. It's not a real political job. And he thought it was really cool and, and valued it and hired me, uh, gave me that opportunity. I really lucked out that someone who appreciated that kind of like entrepreneurship was in that position at the time to, to give me a shot. Yeah, but, but I've seen over and over in listening to people talk about their careers and just my right experiences in life that it's very unpredictable what might happen as a result of something you do, but 
almost always doing things leads to things happening. Those entrepreneurial moves that you made, you learn from them, but you also were able to present yourself differently because you had learned about them. And somebody else who'd maybe done something similar could understand that that gave you more value than someone who hadn't. Yeah. And so when I entered the Senate at the very end of the 2012 cycle and started working for Bernie, we started doing some really cool things that Senate offices just weren't doing when it comes to social media and when it comes to the web. So I started building microsites for for his bills and proposals, which just wasn't done before by most of the Senate. We started aggressively posting on social media. Bernie Sanders, before he was a big deal, had one of the largest followings on Twitter, Facebook, and Google+. Where was that coming from in the office? Was that coming from Bernie? Was that coming from staff that were committed to spreading his message? What was the source of that kind of innovation or at least that using that kind of idea? It, it starts with a senator in Bernie who, number one, had a huge distaste for the corporate media and thought that uh, the media was doing such a bad job of talking about issues that he needed to find a way around it. So it starts with that. And then you had a comms director, this guy, Michael Briggs. He was an old newspaper guy, uh, but he really appreciated young people and what they could bring to the office and like gave the young staff at the office a chance. And then Jeff and I were both tech entrepreneurs before getting into the office. And so Jeff had really started that social media before I came in and I just kind of helped make it a little bit bigger. It was amazing to watch because I had friends working in other Hill offices where, you know, I was a 22 year old or something at the time and I would get to have meetings with Bernie about what we're putting on social media and stuff. Nobody in my other Hill offices were meeting with their senator as a 22 year old, but Bernie really believed in the internet and in social media in a way that other bosses didn't. And he really believed the young people actually had value and like things to say and could do things in his office that would like propel him. So I really credit a lot of it back to him. I've talked to a couple of the progressive radio talk show hosts like Tom Hartman and Jack Smith. And they both told me, you know, like Bernie would come on their show over and over 30 times, you know, lots of times over his whole career. He was super interested, I think, both in pushing out his message and in supporting these lower echelon shows or shows that maybe weren't like meet the press or something. Is that all part of what you were describing earlier is like him trying to get around corporate media? Absolutely. And we did Tom Hartman once a week. I can't remember what the segment was called, like brunch with Bernie or something. And we do an hour of Tom Hartman once a week. And it it all goes back to this desire to get around the, the corporate media. Part of that is because nobody was inviting Bernie Sanders to, to sit on Meet the Press. People were thinking of him as a fringe player. Right. By and large. And then the second part of that was when we did get to talk to Politico or the Wall Street Journal or Washington Post, uh, they wanted to talk about the machinations of D.C. And they didn't want to talk about the policy. And so Bernie really thought that media is just not covering this stuff. They're not covering the fact that uh, Obama is trying to cut Social Security or, you know, they're not covering this. 
And if, if they don't cover it, people aren't going to know about it. So he would go on Tom Hartman and have an hour long discussion about literally just like social security. And we would post on social media, you know, here's how the change CPI is going to hurt seniors and like things like that. And built a real cult following of people who were interested in that, that he carried with him when he eventually, you know, ran for president, became, you know, Bernie 2.0, who he is now. Was an incipient presidential campaign part of what you were hearing back in 2013, 2014, 2015? Or did that surprise you? It surprised me. I wouldn't have said when I had joined the office, you know, at the end of the 2012 cycle, I wouldn't have said like, oh, well, I'm going to team up with Bernie because eventually he's going to run for president. That was not on the radar. I just wanted to be working on the Hill because I wanted to pass bills. And later I figured out, oh, actually, I really enjoy the communications and digital work more. But that presidential thing, uh, we started to talk about it in 2014. I was kind of all in on making it happen at the time because I was getting bored of the box that the Senate office would put you in. There's just like things you can't do with the website. There's things you can't do with your email program. There's only approved vendors you can use. And I wanted to work on the campaign side. In 2014, we started kind of floating that, putting it out there. In 2015, I was one of the first two people hired to be on the campaign because I had been kind of helping to, to lay some of the groundwork. And I didn't join because I thought, oh man, we can really make a run at this. I joined because I wanted like a fun experience. When Bernie called me and said, okay, well, you're moving to the campaign side. And I said, great. He said, what's your title going to be? And I was like, well, I'll probably be the only digital staffer because we're going to be a really small campaign. So I, I named myself the director. <laughs> and then that summer, things exploded. And by the end of the campaign, I was working with, you know, a digital staff of 27. And I was like, you know. Was Jeff Weaver in from the beginning? No, Jeff was not involved at the beginning. He was a former chief of staff of Bernie's a while back. And we were looking for a campaign manager uh, at the very beginning of the campaign. And I think he came in a couple months in after we had already um, established the campaign. Yeah. Uh, talked to him years ago on the show, and he seemed like a, a really interesting character to have at the helm. Yeah. Jeff is an interesting character. Uh, and I'll probably leave it at that. But I, <laughs> I have to give people credit for that thing that that campaign did. And it was beyond my wildest expectations in terms of going from, you know, 2% in the polls to like getting 46% of all the votes at the end it was incredible. You know, I give him a lot of credit for, for being the, the leader there. Tell me about sort of the trajectory of your learning. What were you learning at the Senate office? What did you start learning at the campaign? What are the things that you're picking up over time that would be worth sharing? Yeah. So you, you start with the Senate office. I learned really quickly that I didn't actually want to be the person writing bills because I learned very quickly that that's actually not how change gets made in MDC uh, and that there's a lot of steps before you ever get to the point where you pass any legislation that have to be kind of checked off. I really enjoyed the, the work that I did in, uh, in the press shop, which was like a mix of digital and traditional communications because I was able to touch every issue. So whatever issue of the day was coming up, I was able to comment on it, you know, on social media or 
help with the traditional press side of things. That was fascinating was watching my colleagues on the, the legislative side of the office toil away at bills and editing other people's bills, signing on other people's bills, like committee hearings and feeling like, dang, we're not getting anywhere doing that. Like we're not passing anything of substance. So that was fascinating. And that gave me a real turnabout in like, how do you make change? And that is part of what led me into the campaign space. Because what I realized is that these elections are actually a big part of the change making process. Before you ever get to the, the bills and things like that, you have to win political power electorally. And even even if you're in office like a Bernie or whatever, like you still can build political power in the electoral space. When I got into the campaign space, I learned a lot. I learned the the power of advertising. I learned how much money matters in terms of getting your name out there. I learned how, you know, media narratives can form and completely change the trajectories of campaigns or not. The latest part of my career in founding this this consultancy and building it up has really been about learning how to train the next generation, how to build a, a team and how to create something sustainable that can help the causes and candidates that I believe in. It's been a fascinating ride. Where were you politically? Like, did you form your political identity around kind of like Bernie? Like he has such a way of shaping the way people think about the world. And I think impacted at least the Democratic electorate. And I think beyond that, a lot by how he spoke about things in 2016. But you had all that time in his office in the campaign. Did you change in where you were? Did you feel like you were aligned from the beginning? Where are you with respect to your own politics? I'm a really, really strong believer in that your surroundings shape you a lot more than people give give it credit. I came into the Senate office a liberal, a Democrat, someone who, who believed in universal health care run by the government. But there were a lot of things that Bernie would have said that I would have been maybe more on the Hillary side of things at the time. So Bernie says, let's transfer to Medicare for all. At the time, I would have been more one of those people that's like, yeah, well, that's not going to happen. I want that to happen, but it's not going to. And Bernie and being in his office um, shaped me immensely and, and made me into a person that's like, well, it's not going to happen if you don't make it happen. If we settle before we even get into the argument, we're not going to get anything we want. And so Bernie really shaped my view of politics in a very significant way. I think the most significant episode of that was the veterans bill he passed, which people have forgotten about, but was a very significant piece of legislation that he passed with John McCain. And at the time, the VA was under attack for waiting lines. Some people had died waiting for care. And Burton was saying, well, we need to double down, put more money into the VA. And Republicans and a lot of Democrats were saying the VA is a failure. Let's take money out, make it more private. Because Bernie had set his point of compromise so far to the left, and because John McCain's was so far to the right, they were able to come up with something and pass a real piece of legislation that actually, I think, has helped a lot of people. Once we ran for president shortly thereafter, I kept thinking, if Hillary was negotiating the bill, she would have started the process in the middle. 
And there would have been no room to compromise other than moving into Republican territory and the bill would have been horrible. And so that process and working with Bernie really changed how I believe progressive change can happen and, and what the like mechanics of negotiations are. And so I'm just a firm believer in the people you surround yourself with will shape you. It's his old news, but how were you affected by the HRC versus Bernie fight and the loss? I started on the campaign when we were at 2%. I don't know if this story has been told publicly, but it's a fun one. But when Bernie actually told everyone he was going to run, um, it was me, Michael Briggs, Tad Devine, Mark Longabaugh, Michaeline Krell, who's then chief of staff, Warren Gunnels, in a room together talking about the prospect of a run. He says, okay, I'm going to do it. And he says to all the, the staff that are about to start working on this, he says, I know you all uh, aren't going to be sitting at my inauguration with me, but I think we could make a real dent in this thing with Hillary. <laughs> so he had admitted from the very beginning he was never going to win. And so I always came into it thinking, we're never going to win. And there's a difference between that and the people who joined in the middle who thought we could win. So my mindset was always, we're going to lose. And in that light, I was just not that surprised or disappointed when we lost. I was happy that we made it as far as we did and that we had changed the like terms of the debate as much as we did. So it was a fascinating experience. And on the political side of things, super formative for me to see how the Hillary wing of the party interacted with the Bernie wing of the party and how those two kind of visions collided. Really formative uh, in terms of just how I see like politics working. And I've dedicated my life kind of working on more on the Bernie wing of the party ever since. It sounds like you got to run a team within that campaign because of starting out as director. I mean, management, you've done some entrepreneurial stuff, but this is a, a higher stakes, bigger team I trust that you'd had before. How did you go about that and what did you learn? Because that is not an easy thing to do as a, as a relative youngster. I will be very honest in saying I was supposed to be running a team and I, I don't think I did. We built a team and they did work and we did amazing work. We raised a record-breaking amount of money on the internet. We got to that 46% mark, mostly because he took off on the internet. We were successful because people were hired around me who were really smart already in how to do this stuff. And I had incredible people around me that I was learning on the job. I was not at the time a manager. Nobody had taught me how to become a manager or how to be a leader. What I was good at was allowing my team to do their best work, giving feedback on that work, and running interference between other departments and the things that they needed from digital. And so I think I was able to contribute in that direction. And I think most of the people who worked on the digital team, I still have a great relationship with. So I didn't burn any bridges there. But I can admit all these years later, looking back, I had no clue how to be a manager or a real leader. I didn't have a manager or a leader about me either. I'll say that much too. So I had very few examples. It sounds like you, you maybe by your nature or instinct, didn't make a lot of the mistakes that even some experienced people make in micromanaging or some of the things that you can do wrong that can stifle a team. I don't think I was a micromanager. Not to pat myself on the back, but one thing I have been good at is is admitting what I don't know publicly to everyone else. I did that and people around me 
helped teach me their craft. And hopefully I was able to contribute in a way that made it better. I uh, made the whole program work. I honestly spent most of my time, I think, playing interference between the field teams and the digital team and the data team and the digital team. And um, I think I played that role quite well too. But it was a real trial by fire. And it wasn't until a few years into managing my current company that I think I learned like, okay, like here's what it takes to be a manager. And then maybe four years into running this company, you realized I'm actually not a good manager. That's not what I'm good at. And I decided to hire managers because what I'm good at is, is a totally different skill set. And so that's been a real learning experience for me. Tell me about the founding story of your company. Why the name? How did you get it going? Yeah. So after the, the campaign ended, there was no chance in my mind that I was going to found a company. I wanted to continue working for Burry. We'd just done something incredible. I thought the next phase for the Bernie movement was Bernie taking all of the, the grassroots power that he had amassed and showering it over the thousands of progressive candidates who were running for office and popping up and running in 2017, 2018, and giving that money and organizing resources by using the Bernie Sanders email list and the social media presence and all that. So I helped found Our Revolution, which was the kind of successor organization to, to Bernie's campaign. Shortly thereafter, and all this is in the news, I and uh, about 95% of the staff quit because Bernie had, had wanted to change the leaders of the organization to someone we didn't work for, who we previously mentioned, Jeff. And so Jeff took over the organization and I, and I ducked out. So I was in a moment where I was like, well, I don't know what to do next. The thing that I really wanted to do was, is over and done with it. I was reaching around trying to interview for jobs at nonprofits and other places. And uh, I was used to such a pace from the campaign of work that I was like, oh, I can't come down from this. And I had learned so much that I wanted to use those skills. Uh, and I wanted to keep working with the people I was working with at Bernie. So we ended up founding the consultancy myself. Hector Shigala and Zach Exley at the time, because I wanted to keep, keep working with them. I wanted to use those skills and I really needed multiple clients to meet the like threshold of workload that I was used to. And so that's how we got started. The name, which is actually very significant to me, comes from the first real meme about Bernie Sanders that took off during the campaign. When we first ran the campaign, first started, we had no staff and Bernie was a big events guy, still is, still loves events, rallies, town halls. And so he was traveling all over the country, Iowa, New Hampshire, South Carolina, Nevada, doing these events. We had no money at the start compared to Hillary. And we were always booking the tickets and events last minute. So he was always flying coach and he was always in the middle seat because no aisles or windows were left. As Bernie started becoming more famous, there were all these photos popping up on Twitter like, oh my gosh. Bernie is on my flight and he's sitting in like 27B in the middle. A popular memes account in the space wrote, I'm voting for the guy who's willing to sit in the middle seat. It was a joke and funny, but it was really about the ethos of the campaign, about the fact that Bernie's this, this every man who's fighting for working people, who understands what regular people go through, who's not living the first class lifestyle. And 
that's something we really brought into the company. We've always wanted to be that kind of scrappy, humble organization that is working for the common good and common people. You mentioned Zach Exley. He comes up over and over. He's always founding organizations on the left. He's been around politics for a long time. He's someone I, I met years and years ago. I don't know him very well, but I've certainly know he has a book in the space and lots of other things. Tell me a little bit about his role in your company. Well, I'll go back to the campaign because he worked on the Bernie campaign with me. We were just founding the campaign at, in June of the year that we founded the campaign in June of 2015. We were going to hire a digital organizer to do something with the millions of people who had signed up to volunteer on the, the website, but who had no outlet. <laughs> we, we didn't have work for them to do. I said, okay, well, you know, I'll hire someone whose job it is to like tell these people what to do. Zach's name was floated out there and people in the digital team at the time and were saying like, oh my gosh, he's a legend. He helped, you know, found like moveon.org and all these big things. Like he's been around forever. You know, he's a legend. We didn't actually offer him the job, but he said, uh, I'll, I'll start tomorrow and I'll be in DC. So it was like, he got the job. <laughs> Originally, he said he was like, I won't even take a salary. And we we're like, okay. So he shows up in our office in DC the very next day. We, we initiated talking to him and we said, okay, your first project is Bernie wants to hold a, um, a town hall meeting with like all the volunteers. And we started putting it on and he goes, okay, here's the staff I need to work under me. And I said, Zach, you don't get it. There is no staff. You have no budget. You have no staff, no budget. And he quit. And that night sent an email to the Bernie's chief of staff saying, this Kenneth kid is an idiot. He doesn't know what he's doing. He has no idea. It's going to be a huge failure. The next morning, he comes back to the office and says, like, okay, I'm unquitting. I figured out you've given me a really great opportunity because by not allowing me to hire any staff, you're going to force me to really fully utilize the volunteer network that we're going to build for Bernie. And I credit Zach and other colleagues who, who came with him, Claire Sandberg, Becky Bond, Zach Mallets, for building out what we now kind of call like very campaign distributed organizing, which is the idea that like volunteers can do basically all the work if you allow them to. And he built a really incredible program with, with those colleagues. And after the election, he was the one who said, we'll found a consultancy together, you, me, and Hector, and uh, I'll get us our initial clients. And he brought in a few like initial clients. Now, Zach, as you mentioned, is a serial entrepreneur and serial, you know, creator of things. He's amazing at creating things, but he's famously bad at actually doing the work over time and sustaining them. He'll tell you that. And so he's created so many big things and that, and he's such an ideas guy and a genius. Once it got to the part of actually just running middle seat as a company, he kind of dipped out. And that's when we bought him out of the company. Yeah, he really helped get us started and has been a huge influence on my career. Tell me about Hector. I don't know him. So, so Hector Sagala worked with me in the Senate office. He was the IT guy in Bernie's Senate office, but he would always come over to our side of the office to chat. And he was the other person in the office other than myself and Jeff who were serious computer nerds, really interested in everything that was happening on the internet, and incredibly smart and a fast learner. 
when, uh, you know, a few years of working together in the Senate office, then I started working on the campaign. And as I mentioned, I was like employee number two. I was initially going to do everything on the campaign. Like, oh, I'll do the social media. I'll write some of the emails. I'll build the website. I'll do graphic design. And then quickly realized like I was in over my head. I needed help. Bernie said, Hector can help us set up computers for the new campaign staff on the side. And he was doing that. I said, like, no, you're not doing that anymore. I'm going to sit down with you, teach you everything I know about social media. And tomorrow you're going to start running Bernie's social media accounts. And so we did that. We sat down for like, you know, a full day. And I imparted everything I knew about social media. And because he's such a fast learner, he was able to build something far superior to what I had ever done on social media before that over the course of the campaign. And I think build what's largely considered to be like the biggest social media juggernaut in campaign history in terms of the online thing. Maybe not relatively in numbers anymore, but in terms of like where it went at the time compared to like where candidates were, it was huge. So he was the social media director on the campaign and and a fantastic one at that. And just a, a great person I work with and someone who works really hard and learns really fast. So when we were founding the consultancy, I said, hey, I, I already know quite a bit about email, fundraising and marketing and building websites. Do you think you can learn how to be an advertiser? And he was like, yeah, I'll, fi- I'll pick that up. And so he did. I consider him to be the, the top uh, digital advertiser in the entire country when it comes to politics. Yeah, pretty amazing. There's quite a history in the world of digital, political digital firms of gaining a reputation in a campaign, the Dean campaign, the Obama campaign, the Bernie campaign, and then coming out and having people want whatever happened in that campaign for their own organization. That kind of reputation propels a firm very often like I would like to do what Obama did online, right? For my organization or the equivalent. You must've had some of that. How did you harness that? How did you go beyond Zach finding some clients? how did you build an actual business out of the momentum that you had from the campaign? Yeah. So what I didn't realize was how broad of a network we had built over the course of the campaign. And that's really what built the business we have today. So Zach had gotten us a couple of clients, but we had at the height of the campaign, I remember this because I sent out Christmas gifts to every single person on staff via email. And at the height of the campaign, we had 2,500 employees. And I would say all 2,500 of them knew me and Hector at some point because they they all needed something from the social media side of things or the digital side of things at some point. Everybody, whether you're on field, data, event planning, like management, whatever, needed something from digital. And so they all became acquainted with us. And after the campaign, those 2,500 people scattered into the nonprofit PAC candidate spheres. And they were the ones who came calling later and said, oh, kind of connector, like those are the digital people. And that's really what built the business. A challenge over the course of building this business is taking that reputation and everybody wanting to be like Bernie, like Howard Dean, like Obama, and telling people you can have the best tactics and strategies, but not get those results based on who you are as a client, right? You're putting out into the world. I like to remind people like Bernie's success was was entirely his own. And we were there with 
I, I think, the right tactics and strategies, but the tactics and strategies are 10% of the equation and the other 90% was Bernie's politics and the way he talked to people and the way he inspired people and his ideas. And so you have to have the right ingredients on the side of those tactics and strategies to make that work. And that's been one of the challenges, I think, as I've moved into the consulting space. Well, I guess the question that occurs to me following that is, what makes a great client for you? What do you look for? What's an ideal client? That's a good question. An ideal client is, on the candidate side at least, someone running for office who is going to say new things, say things that are going to grab attention. People underappreciate how important attention is in politics. One of the things Bernie was able to do is, is grab everyone's attention with with ideas that hadn't been talked about for a long time and ideas that weren't in the mainstream of the Democratic Party at the time. When I think about ideal candidates these days, there are people who, who do grab your attention for one reason or another. So when you think about why Fetterman grabs people's attention, people joke about him wearing shorts or things like that. What's really behind that is the sense that he's a normal guy. And what people are longing for in politics is someone who understands them and can relate to them and can relate to their struggles. And so I think he had that it factor, so to speak. In a completely different direction, a candidate who had that it factor last cycle was Lucas Coots in Missouri, who ended up losing kind of tragically to like a billionaire Paris. I interviewed him before he lost that primary. And okay. he had that populist feel to him and and it seemed native, you know, and it, it, one wonders how he would have done, right, with that uh, angle. I think better. I think he would have done better. I think and, so. And I think it's quite possible. Yes. So you know, I I look for candidates who who understand attention, who understand how to get it. And obviously, I'm I'm a progressive. Um, I'm looking at policy as well. Like I, I want the policies to be good for uh, for working people, underserved people, underprivileged people. I also think in order to build that power to get any of those policies, you have to be able to get attention. And so those are the kind of things that I look for. Every cycle, two or three people pop up that really, really hit that space for me. And Lucas was one. John was another. Sounds like you did something with AOC. So AOC, uh, so my friends and, and Zach actually is an original founder of Brand New Congress, which turned into Justice Democrats. The original idea that Zach had was to replace every single member of Congress. And AOC was actually on my team, my larger team, on Zach's team, on, inside of my larger team as an organizer. So they had recruited her to run. I had been working for Justice Dems, the group, on their fundraising and their digital. Uh, and towards the end of AOC's campaign, they had released the video. I feel remember the viral video of her. And that was the first real three-minute candidate launch video that went super viral and it was a new thing to do at the time. And when it went viral, she started getting real traction on fundraising and at the media. And Zach and Shortcut, who was running Justice Dems at the time, said, hey, will you come and help with our fundraising for the last couple of months? So we hopped onto her campaign in the last couple of months. I was mostly doing it as a favor to Zach and Shortcut because Shortcut was a client uh, for Justice Dems. And I was floored when she won. <laughs> I was like absolutely floored uh, and like humbled to have been like a very, very, very small part of it. Uh, but yeah, and and we've been working with her, her team ever since. And 
uh, building out their their online fundraising presence, which is is very robust. When you think about running a firm in the space, typically when you run a business, there's a inclination to try to grow it over time. So you can get more and better employees. You can pay your current employees more. You can have more impact. Do you ever feel like you pigeonhole yourself on the left and leave out potential clients? Or how do you think about the positioning of your firm with the background that you have and what's your intention over time? It's been a blessing and a curse, you know, as many clients have come to us because we're, we're in that side of things as, as we've denied. But I'm not going to lie, there are a lot of big projects that we probably could have gotten on that, that we didn't because their work values aligned. Yeah, there's, there's trade-offs to it. One thing that's been rewarding is that every time we hire a new staffer, I hear them say, I, I came here because I want to be proud of my work and I know like I'm not going to be ashamed by the clients that I'm working for, which is different than other firms in the space. And so that's really always made me feel good about the direction that we chose to take the firm in. And we have worked for clients that I, I'm not 100% values aligned with. So we worked for Joe Biden in the general election. We did that because I think that it was important for progressives to to defeat Donald Trump. I think it was important for for my team, which is good at what they do, to bring their skills to that campaign. And so over time, we're a progressive firm. And in, in the context of a primary, we always want to be working for the most progressive person in the space who's the most values aligned. But we've also found ways to do kind of those high profile clients in general elections and at times when we have to like beat up on the Republicans. So, so it's, it's, it's worked out. Tell me how you think about the space of firms that you compete with. There's a bunch of them. I've interviewed founders of a, a lot of them and not all of them. There is a spectrum of excellence that not everybody agrees on, but among the practices that are controversial are attitudes towards how spammy or scammy your emails are, how frequent they are, how much you cookie cutter your work versus make it creative and personalized to the candidate. How do you compare yourself and what do you advocate in, in that sort of practices area? Yeah. So we're known for being on the decidedly not scammy side of the, the spectrum. We do that because the people I learned this trade from on the Burning campaign uh, were, were very intentional about yeah crafting every message in a way that wasn't trying to trick people into donating and things like that. And we had great results. And so a falsehood that's been spread around the Democratic Party is that the, the scam tactics work and that therefore that's why firms use them. I don't think there's actually evidence to support that. The best programs in the space that have raised the most money over time, whether you look at historic fundraisers like Howard Dean or Barack Obama or Bernie Sanders or the DNC's extremely successful growth in their program these days, when you look at the people who have been successful, it's been running these authentic programs that are are not scammy and don't come off as spammy. So I think that's been just an interesting thing in the space is kind of that, that evolution and and there is a real split of firms. You're right on, on both sides. And my position is is that you don't have to try to be scammy to to make money. In fact, if you build a relationship with your donors, they feel loyal to you. 
like people felt to burn if they feel excited by your ideas, they'll donate. So what can we do to reduce the scamminess that's out there? Like, I, I don't know how it happens. I contribute to a few campaigns each cycle. My email gets spread around. It's sold all over the place. Yeah. Right. Some, some campaigns pummel me. Sometimes I can't tell that much the difference between the Trump emails I, I often get because I've signed up to look at, at what they're doing. I mean, maybe it's a matter of degree, but sometimes I'm pretty embarrassed by what's coming out of some of the candidates' campaigns that I, I, I'm rooting for and, and honor a lot of other things about them. Is there a solution? What's wrong with the incentives? What's going on? What can we change to fix this? Yeah. So I want to make a distinction between two things, which are spam and scam. And I think there's an important distinction to be made in the Democratic Party. When you think about spam, when you think about like Warnock emailing me 20 times today, it's annoying. I'm I'm not going to lie. I, you know, I don't want that in emails. Like I really don't. But I understand why they do it. And I've looked very deeply into that question of like, how often should you be contacting people? And I understand why they contact people more often than not. And I don't actually feel like it's a bad thing to contact people a lot of times. Now, people are free to disagree with me on that. But I think that, you know, it's important to take power. The main way that these candidates make money is through those emails. And if you can send more emails, make more money and get into the Senate, it's been worth it. The spam thing is, is a little different to me than the scam thing. And I want to make that distinction clear. I think in terms of the scammy emails, the fake things like the match or the misleading subject lines or misleading sender lines, we have to dispel the falsehood that they work. And it's not that they don't raise money or whatever. It's that if you look at those programs, the amount of money you have to spend to keep acquiring emails to go into that machine where they get scammed and spammed and then unsubscribe on the other side is so great that the profit margin for those campaigns is very low. And so a Fetterman campaign, which does not try to scam people, you know, which has like real well thought out content in every email, actually had a much greater profit margin than the campaigns that were doing the spam and scam tactic. And so I think we need to dispel that myth. And it starts with people not accepting that, oh, well, they do it because it works. That's not true. We need to talk about the success stories, which are the Obamas, the Bernies, the Federins, the Beto Rourke's, the AOCs, the people who've raised the most money and are running these ethical, authentic programs. We need to talk about how successful they are without doing any of that stuff. So it's amazing. But we're all talking, you know, I've got to assume that the overlap in the donor base among Fetterman and Beto and people like that with the same people who are getting contacted by somebody using less well thought out tactics is huge. And, you know, it's my supposition and a lot of people ag agree that it is taking people offline as donors because they're getting pummeled. It's a collective action problem that we are not solving. Maybe it's being done right by this campaign, but it's not being done right by 10 other campaigns. That's like eating our seed corn. Is there a reform we can make beyond sort of saying, look, this is a myth? Is there an industry group that can 
set rules or what could be done to make this better on our side that would redound to everyone's benefit in the long run? I have a lot of opinions on this, this space. And I think my opinions are actually quite controversial in uh, space too. Number one is I haven't actually seen evidence that we are damaging the ecosystem by sending so much content. I don't think we should assume that that is the case. I've run a number of experiments with control groups that indicate that spreading emails around doesn't actually lower their performance on other campaigns in a period of like a year. Now, the question is, what happens over many years as this keeps happening and as people keep getting along? Well, I'm just basing this somewhat on talking to people who will say to me, I just spent 45 minutes unsubscribing. So that's some people are certainly taking themselves out of it. On the other hand, as this has become the norm, when I first started doing email programs, the standard was sending 12 emails per month. Now the standard for a Senate campaign is 90. As that transition has happened, if you look at aggregate numbers, fundraising for, from small dollar donors has dramatically risen. We need to be serious because the things we're talking about, because taking power is so important. We need to be serious about evaluating the real trade-offs there. I think people will say the same thing about the distributed organizing work we do. They don't like getting texts from, from candidates asking them to do things. They don't like getting phone calls from candidates. And they don't like it when people show up at your door. But we do it because we've demonstrated that it works. And the best campaigns do it, and they do it often, and they do it a lot. I'm sympathetic to the viewpoint that a lot of emails feels annoying and feels bad. But I've also seen a lot of data that more emails works. And I think that's why I differentiate between spam and scan on my head. Because as long as you're sending people high quality, informative, good content, I actually don't have as much of a problem with it as I do with misleading people. I think it's wrong. It's morally wrong to, to mislead people. Do you think that misleading people works? I mean, like just taking that subset, which you don't agree with. I mean, if does the same data you're citing discover that or is that sort of not? something that it, it doesn't. And that's, that's what I, I've tried to convince people in the space on the, the programs that mislead people. What they do is they squeeze a lot of money out of a few people, but it takes so much spending to make those programs work that the profit margins are really low. So the way you fix all this, number one, I strongly believe it's not an internal democratic party fix because the one thing that I don't believe in is unilateral disarmament. I don't believe that super PACs should exist. I believe they should be abolished. And yet, they do. And I believe as long as they do, that the left needs to compete with super PACs as much or more as the right. And I feel the same way about spam on email. Spam works. And it's unfortunate because I don't like it and it's annoying. But it works and is generating results. That's something I've seen in the data that I believe and the way we need to attack this is a both parties thing. Amy Klobuchar is working on this. Uh, not a huge fan, but she's working on it. We need a law that does a very simple thing. And that law would remove political campaigns from being exempt from the Can-Spam Act. The reason that Gap or Target can sell your email or buy your email from someone else and start emailing it is that they're, it's illegal. And we need to actually make it illegal for campaigns to, to buy 
people's emails and start emailing them cold without their opt-in. And the reason it's important to make it a lot is, of course, so that the Republicans and Democrats are, are both penalized by it equally. Stop me from doing this. You've talked about studies and some which I guess you've performed yourself. Who else in the industry, in the analytics firms, in, in the space, in academia is studying this kind of thing and can weigh in about what works and what doesn't work? What do you pay attention to? What do you see out there? Yeah, one of the difficulties in this space and fundraising in particular is that there aren't incentives to share your learnings. Part of that's because we compete against another party and we don't want to share. Part of that's because firms compete against one another and I don't want to share things I've learned with another firm that's a competitor. Part of that's because even within parties, we're competing for money with each other. The lack of sharing is, is really something that makes this tough. But firms like mine, so the experiments that I'll talk about. So last year, I ran 12 experiments where two clients had swapped email addresses. So they gave, you know, a one list to client B and client B gave a list to client A. And I held up control groups that didn't get swapped. And I simply measured, did their activity levels change over time compared to the control group because I gave their email to someone else who's also emailing them. And over 12 experiments, not a single one of them did the activity levels of the swapped people decrease. And that was surprising to me because I came into these experiments believing very strongly that there's no way that... But maybe that's just a tiny percentage of the activity that the potential donors are getting by email. So it's you know, doesn't matter. And we're talking about experiments in the millions of contacts range too. So really statistically significant stuff. And so other firms like mine have, have done experiments like this. And this stuff I think doesn't get made public as much because it's uh, highly controversial because nobody in the party or the public outside digital firms likes spam. Nobody wants to, there's no incentive for me as a company to go out there and be like, I'm the proponent of spam. <laughs> there's no reason to do that. So yeah. ultimately, like the bottom line here is the way to fix this is regulation. And I actually think this is a bipartisan thing that everybody in the country can get behind. Make it illegal for campaigns and nonprofits to spam you. Right now it's not, and they do it. Make it illegal and it will go away. Make it illegal or allow the FEC to go after campaigns for misleading people into donating the things that they thought were real at large into the fake 2x matches make those things illegal i got an 1100 percent match thing from trump yesterday or the day before it's a while it's dry it's a plan of fraud and if you if you go after that as a government it'll stop and so i just uh it's it's that simple solution that um that i actually think is really bipartisan that if people pushed for that could be very successful and I would be all behind it. If you don't mind, I'd like to ask you some more about the Fetterman campaign because it was a notable campaign online, right? Throughout the whole cycle. I wasn't close to it, but the fact that I noticed a lot of what was going on with a campaign online tells you something, right? One, it's a guy with the characteristics that you mentioned earlier that sets him apart, but also there clearly was a bunch of smart people working to take advantage of that and to define his opponent 
in the general election, particularly using social media, using memes, using all of the tools that you had. Tell me a little bit about the Fetterman digital team and strategy and just what was going on behind the scenes there? Yeah, I had heard of Fetterman from his very first Senate race because he had endorsed Bernie, which was a rarity at the time in 2016. Nobody running for anything was endorsing Bernie against Hillary because Hillary was going to be president. Uh, And so I had heard of him, but hadn't heard much from him. You know, I knew he was lieutenant governor. And Rebecca Katz, one of his senior advisors, had uh, reached out to, to Hector very early on in October of 2020 and said, hey, we're going we're to make a run for, for Senate and we, we want a digital team, we want you on board. We signed up. I want to go back to the attention thing because John and the people around him knew how to get attention. And that is why you noticed him so much is that they knew how the politics and of attention work. That was really like the baseline of like why we were successful is that uh, John and, and his like core team know how to get attention. Now, the digital effort, which I'm, I'm very proud of, was a mix of a lot of great people at Middle Seats, Chumanita Count, Audrey Glazer, Emily Harrison, who were working on emails, and Denise on the advertising side, Becca Weenis, and early on, Andrea Millman, who moved on to something, and another person, Sophie Oda. Sophie became the digital director internally in the campaign, and then Middle Seat played a role on email, advertising, the website, graphic design, things like that. It's been the kind of campaign I've been aching to run for a long time, which was a competitive campaign with a progressive candidate where we could apply all of the like digital strategies and tactics we learned about for, for many years. It's almost boring with the stuff we did, uh, which is build a large email list by getting a lot of people to sign up for it, build a really cool brand around him, sell cool merch, work with a comms team who knew how to nail Twitter and get attention, build a voice that was authentic to who John was, who's this casual guy. He's not like a super politician-y person. So when you get an email and there's a bunch of like, weird phrases and stuff. Well, that's because that's how John talks, you know? I'm really proud of the the program that everybody built. And I think the like core tenets were, you know, knowing how to grab people's attention, having the ideas that are popular, the progressive platform, and then those tactics that really allowed us to like show his authenticity in the program. What's a moment that sticks out to you along the way that challenged your team and the campaign and how did you deal with that? Well, certainly the stroke. I heard about it. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, the stroke was, we were just on such a fucking high in the primary. <laughs> like we were just up and up and up. We were absolutely destroying it in the primary, in a primary that most political establishment people thought he was going to lose to cop land. We were doing quite well. And then, of course, just days before the primary, he had this stroke. You know, he was offline for such a long period of time, and he was unable to to be as close of a part of the program as he had been in the beginning. So that presented a real challenge. And I think the way we were able to meet that challenge was because we had spent so many months building up the voice of who John Fetterman is online as a campaign, even, 
not just as in as a guy, but as a campaign. This is who John Fetterman is on the internet. Because we had such a clear idea of what that voice looked like, even when he was a little less in commission post-stroke, we were still able to carry that forward. And some of our best things that happened to us as a campaign were just right after the stroke. We won the primary, of course. And then after that, we had a multi-month period where we set out as a campaign to cast Dr. Oz as an outsider and to do so in very funny ways online and to do so with comedy and talking about how he's from New Jersey. He certainly gave some ammunition there too. Yeah. And that was one of the most successful periods of the campaign, even though John was physically very much out of commission and unable to like be as much of a part as he would have wanted to the campaign because we had his voice and we had built, you know, that audience was able to like make that work, you know, even without him there. So I think that stands out to me. Is Senator elect Fetterman whole enough to be a good Senator? Absolutely. So people have seen the the debate and if, if anybody knows anybody with a stroke, the nerves are the thing that sets off the speech problems. And he was so nervous during the debate, like the speech was worse than a day before when we were talking to him, I got a Zoom call. So his his speech stuff is like actually a lot better than people might think because they're only seeing him at nerve-wracking settings like doing a television interview or, you know, being on stage for a Well, that's a lot of being a senator, though. Yeah, talking is a little bit of being a senator. As someone who's worked for them, I think it's a little bit of it. The intellect, the ideas, the thinking is all 100% there. And I've had so many conversations, uh, you know, with him that I'm like, okay, like he's there. He's having some speech problems that I think will recover over time. You know, it usually takes year, year and a half from what I've Googled for those things to recover. But the really like thing that I, I'm just grateful for is that he didn't have any like brain damage. That's not impairing like his ability to think. Like days later, he was talking to us about Shapiro and the machinations of like Pennsylvania politics. So like he's there. It's it's really is a speech problem at this point. So he'll continue to go to speech therapy. People will be seeing improvements there. And, you know, he'll he'll be an effective senator because in terms of like the actual intellect and the values and everything, everything's intact. So I'm I'm fucking excited for him to be in the Senate. I think it's gonna be a huge breath of fresh air in there. You're firm right now coming out of an election cycle. I've been in a cyclical firm like that, maybe a little bit less cyclical, but similar. What are your goals going forward? How do you change the firm? How are you trying to make it what you want it to be over the longer term? Our goals have always been to make change and make a mark on this stuff. I know that sounds a little like hoi joy or whatever, like, oh, they come to DC and try to like make change or whatever, but that's really what it's about. And so for me, I think I want to be involved in like consequential races and, and consequential elections and consequential policy fights. And that's that's the most important thing. And to get there, you need to build a team that is trusted and capable of like being in the room for those fights. And so my goal has been building that kind of a team and then pitching ourselves to the people who are going to be, be in those fights. And so that's why I'm glad to have like a, a client like Federman that was in a swing state race that was important for for us to win. And, you know, to do such a good job on a campaign like that as a team is so meaningful because 
clearly like winning the sad majority and stuff like that. You know, these are like consequential things that are going to make change in real people's lives. So continuing to put ourselves in a position where we could be in the room on these consequential campaigns and policy fights is, is really the goal. And for me, that just means getting on big stuff, uh, which is hard to do because there are a lot of firms could be Dan's base. Have you already landed good clients afresh since the election for 2024? Yeah. So we have, a, we have a lot of clients who are incumbents who are going to be running again, which is exciting. Um, and you know, we'll have some new, some new clients running for, for Senate, things like that coming up, which I'm excited about as well. Um, and this is very much the period where people start thinking about running for those offices and we start seeing people reach out. And so over the next five or so months, I expect to know a lot more about like what our cycle is going to shape up to be. But yeah, we've got some exciting stuff coming up. How do you think about the Democratic primary situation where like clearly you have an interest in the progressive challenger, maybe to the more moderate incumbent by the nature of your firm and your experience. Sometimes that can assist the party in winning a seat or holding a seat. Sometimes it can pull an incumbent down and we can lose it because of just the politics of being beat up. How do you think about like who to take on as a client with that lens? Like you could think about that with regard to Biden, for example. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's important to me and to our team is taking power and changing people's lives for the better. Right. And so everything boils down to that. And you have to make evaluations based on what's going to do that. Right. And so Biden versus Trump was a very easy and a clear one for us to make, even though was Biden my first choice for a president? No. In the primary, maybe Biden's not your... Well, the primary things you're looking at are, um, you know, things like, can we make this person have a shot? Like, did, uh, like, is this person, does this person have a legitimate chance of taking power and making policy? If not, maybe it's not something we would work on. And then like, are, are their ideas good? Are their ideas like going to be helpful, Right. So there are all those calculations that go into it, and every race is going to be a little different. Lucas Kuntz is a great example. There was a guy running in the Democratic primary, like supposedly to the left of Lucas or whatever. I think like ultimately his role is play a spoiler. Were there certain things on policy or whatever where you mightn't agree with someone like that or where I might have agreed with Ralph Stater in the past or whatever? Like, sure. But what I ultimately believe is important is, is taking power and making policy to help people. And so everything kind of flows through that chat box list, if you will. And a candidate like Fetterman's a great example of a candidate who was there with us on the values and could win and can now go on to help make policy. But it's not always that easy. And sometimes we have to erase where our candidate, you know, I don't agree with them on everything for better work. I'm very proud to have worked for him. I don't really agree with his position on oil extraction, but... I was really proud to work for him because he was a candidate who put up multiple serious fights in, in Texas, which is very difficult to do in a, in a very red state environment. I think you have to evaluate everyone from that kind of holistic like viewpoint. And, and it's a race by race thing and a candidate by candidate thing. But the ultimate goal is always the same. 
You've been very generous with your time in this conversation. I really enjoyed talking to you. Is there a question that I should have asked you that I haven't? I think one thing I'm interested in talking about lately is the future of political advertising. And I'll give you my one minute spiel, which is uh, because I'm really excited about it because it's something Middleton's doing. We're undergoing this shift as a world in which the way we consume content is moving from traditional television being the main driver to streaming, digital, traditional television in the mix, radio in the mix, and all sorts of things. And so one thing I'm like excited about watching and excited about being part of is the move to mixed media. And so one thing Middle Seed is doing that's different, I think, is getting into the TV space, getting into the traditional TV space and starting to compete with old incumbent TV firms that have been doing this forever. And the reason we're doing that is because TV has changed, the way people watch it has changed, and streaming is such a big thing. And we're actually the kind, we're actually the strategic experts in streaming and digital. And so um, I'm excited to like weigh into that space a little bit more. And I think one thing we'll see in the, the political advertising world over the next several years is a convergence where what was once thought of as two different things, digital and television, are basically going to become the same thing. And so that's something I'm excited about this next cycle and beyond. I've, I've heard that being said by digital firms for a while, a, a bunch of cycles. I've also heard lots of people say we do too much on TV and we can't tell that it's impactful and we should be shifting more money out of it. But it seems like also it goes on still to a much greater extent than all the people that I talk to at least seem to be advocating. What is your actual evaluation of how are we doing as a party with that mix and what it takes to get it where it should be? So we're doing poorly. <laughs> and uh, the reason we're doing poorly is entirely because we don't optimize over the people problem. And the people who run campaigns tend to be quite a bit older than me, for one, tend to be about 20 years older than I am. What you have is a political and nonprofit infrastructure that's, that's a little bit older in terms of the leadership. And that uh, is comfortable with television. And that's that's where the budget goes because it's always been that way. And so what I'm excited about is challenging that. I'm excited about getting older myself and becoming kind of someone who's like a more of a vet in this space because I, I'm excited about, you know, being considered to take more like strategic leadership roles on campaign, stuff like that, to be able to bring some of these ideas about. So the progress has been slower in moving towards a better mix than it should be. If you look at the corporate world, digital is like like far, far past where television spending is, but politics hasn't changed as much. And it's because the people who run the campaigns are also the people who run the television firms. And so I'm excited to change that. And I think um, we'll see that change slower than than we want it to be. But the campaigns who do take advantage of the, the campaigns who invest in the internet, who invest in streaming and Hulu and YouTube and, and those places are going to see huge dividends because their opponents aren't doing it yet. Other people in the party aren't doing it yet. And they're exposing themselves to all sorts of voters who just aren't seeing nearly as much, you know, political advertising content as your average linear television viewer is watching. Do you think that between the two parties, there's any 
difference in how well people are moving to that new way of doing things? The trend over the last two decades has been Democrats being ahead of Republicans when it comes to the internet. I think that the Trump campaign very quickly closed the gap and there is a, a threat now that Republicans will become the party that more quickly embraces connected TV and streaming and digital before Democrats come around on it. I don't want that to happen, clearly. I don't think it's clear who's leading at this point. Part of that is we talked earlier on in the conversation about the secrecy of digital buying. We just don't know like who bought what and how much they bought. That's a, a tough challenge to overcome. We have some data points. Maybe it's even, even, even with Republicans. But this could be an area where Democrats excel if we move in this direction. With regard to Fetterman, do you think that they got the mix right in terms of online versus TV? And if they did or didn't, why? I'll give the honest answer, which is I would have liked to see us do a little bit more online. And they know that. Just so I know about not offending anyone. Some of the reasons for, for not doing it, like, I think we had an excellent team that was working on television, really smart people. When you have the divide of like a TV firm working on TV and a digital firm working on digital, you're, you know, the TV firm is only focusing on building the best possible TV program that can. And they're just advocating for a budget that would give them the best possible programming. And the digital team is working on the same thing. So that's part of why I'm excited to merge the two together and run programs from a unified perspective where we just say, where's the best place to spend? So that's, you know, that's what I'm excited about moving toward. Do you have any campaign that's willing to hire you for all of that? Or is, I mean, I could imagine uh, if I were running a firm like yours, that taking that position that you want to do both would cause some sharp elbows from the people in the TV world who would push a different digital firm that wouldn't have to compete with you. I don't know if I quite put that right, but I think you understand what I mean. Like when there are those silos, they tend to reproduce themselves over time because people follow their lanes and push people around who try to jump into two lanes at the same time. Yeah. Part of the interesting thing is you're seeing the convergence on the television side as well. Television companies are starting to say, oh, well, we'll buy streaming ads too. Now, there's a lot of expertise involved in doing that, and I think we do it better. But so there's a little convergence on both sides. And then as far as like the sharp elbows thing, I think our challenge as a firm that started digital and is moving into like linear television and radio in that space is convincing people we could do it because if I'm a campaign manager, I want experts, right? I want the people who do that best to work on that thing. And so convincing people that we could do it better at a lower cost and at the same quality is the challenge for us. And I think that's that's what we're working on. Have you thought about merging with a TV firm that has the credibility that would be compatible? Yeah, I think it's hard to do that in this space. It's hard to figure out like where value lies and it's hard to put a value on these companies that are on these weird cycles and there's a lot of luck involved and a lot of personal relationships. And or it could just be bring in a partner who, I mean, I noticed that you're hiring. I saw on LinkedIn that you're hiring, uh, is it another partner? We're hiring for a, um, a COO. 
COO. We're looking for someone to help us yeah, run the company. And um, yeah, I mean, that's something we've considered. Yeah, sure. What kind of person would you like to find for COO? I think it's often a really crucial step for a founder to find, like you mentioned, maybe that, you know, management wasn't 100% your thing, but clearly you have a, a, a ton of strengths, right, that you're bringing to this and experience. Sometimes that's a huge move to find somebody who can manage the firm and free you to do all of the external facing things, let's say. Yeah. We would like to find someone who we can trust at this like level, who has this kind of experience, who understands the space, but who also excels as a manager. That's really key for us, who can help manage our team leads who can be a strategic like vision setter and decision maker for the company who can help us with the like financial oversight and things like that. And, and the ideal scenario is some of that running the company stuff has taken off of the plate and I could spend more of my time with clients, which is what I'm good at. Uh, and that's something I've had to like work on identifying over the years, but that's the ideal scenario, right? So yeah, it's a bit of a unicorn hiring thing and it's, it's tough to do. So We'll see, but we've already gotten some people putting in their application and stuff, so I'm cautiously optimistic. That's cool. Well, great to talk to you. Is there anything else you want to say? No. Uh, it was great to talk to you as well and get to know you. That was Kenneth Pennington. He's at middleseat.co. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found. The Great Battlefield is now part of the Democracy Group Podcast Network. Visit democracygroup.org to learn more about other podcasts that cover democracy and civic engagement. You can also help me by leaving comments and good ratings on Apple Podcasts or elsewhere and by sending me suggestions for great guests to nperlman at gmail.com.